Good morning, Grace Point. It's good to be back with you guys. If you have your Bibles, you're going to need them this morning. Go ahead and open them to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 10. You can hold your finger there for a moment. Gospel of Mark, chapter 10. We're going to be starting in verse 23. While you guys are turning there, let's go ahead and open up this morning in prayer. Father God, we are so thankful for all that you've given us. Lord, the, the fact that we live in a country where it's free to open up your word, Lord, or your word is filled with so many treasures, Lord, that are satisfying to our souls, Lord. We thank you for it, Lord. Thank you for the, the sacrifice of Jesus that we get to look at today, Lord, that we might have a, a renewed relationship with you. Lord, I thank you that though your, your gospel demands incredible sacrifice on our behalf, Lord, it involves your incredible grace for us. So, Father, would you speak to us by the power of your Spirit this morning, Lord? Would you soften our hearts to hear what your Spirit would have for each and every one of us, Lord? Instruct us, teach us, rebuke us if needed, Lord. We invite you here in our lives, Lord, to speak directly to each one of us. So, Lord, I pray now that you would bless the reading and teaching of your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. It was in 1886, Leo Tolstoy, you might have heard of him, He was an author and he wrote this particular short story called How Much Land Does a Man Require? Some of you may have heard this. Some of you, I think I remember reading this story in the junior high, um, possibly, and it really stuck in my mind this week as we are opening up the Gospel of Mark again. The story, if you haven't heard of it, is about this peasant man, a peasant farmer, and he happens to overhear a conversation between his wife and his sister-in-law in his house. And his sister-in-law's from the big city. And their argument goes like this. It's better to live in the city where there's wealth, where there's abundance, where we can have so much more, everything's closer and everything's more accessible than it is to live in the countryside. And, and his wife's argument back was, no, the country is so much better because in the country men aren't tempted by the devil. So it just so happens that the devil was sitting in this room, unbeknownst to this man, this peasant, and he took this as a challenge. This, this man was thinking to himself, yes, you know what, she's so right. There's the, you know, if we just had more land, then we would be so content. We would have more than we ever needed. We could live comfortably. So the devil took on this man's challenge. He said, challenge, challenge accepted. And he's thought to himself, the devil thought to himself, I'm going to give this man as much land as he possibly could have or want, and then he will be mine. So it just so happens that later on in this story, the man has an opportunity to buy more land, and he has to borrow money and scrape any little pennies he has left to buy a little bit more land, and this land is fruitful. It multiplies, and all of a sudden now he has five times more than he started with, and he's able to pay back all of his debts to his family and to the person he bought the land from, and he's living comfortably, and he's farming this land. But the problem was is he started noticing as time went on, his neighbors would allow their horses into his cornfields, and they would eat some of his corn. And, and some of his neighbors would travel through his fields and, and, create, and create paths. And he didn't really like this. And the final straw with him was finally when a neighbor came and cut down five of his trees. He went to, to their commune, and he decided to essentially sue his neighbors for the damages on his property. And this story keeps progressing as the devil is sowing discord between this man and his neighbors. Eventually, all of his neighbors are so upset with this man because they keep, he keeps charging them with ruining his pr precious little property. And 
eventually this man decides, well, all my neighbors hate me, so while I'm doing five times better than I was, I'm not necessarily in a better place because now everyone around me doesn't like me and they're actually threatening to burn my property. So it just so happens that the next day a traveling peasant comes through and he tells this this, uh, this peasant, hey, did you hear about this commune that's opening up 300 miles away? There's people settling there, and the land has never been farmed. It's better than any other land you've ever heard of. In fact, the, the grain and, and all of the, the, everything you're growing grows higher and bigger and better on this property. And he's like, I need to go investigate. So he travels and investigates this new place, and not much longer later, he sells off all that he has, and he moves his family to this new commune where he starts afresh. And before he knows it, he has 10 times what he started with. Ten times the comfort, and now he had multiple fields with multiple different crops. And as the story goes, this man eventually wanted to add on another crop that he didn't have. But you see, he didn't have the right kind of land to grow that crop. So he decides to rent that land from somebody else. But the problem was that land was ten miles away from where he lived, so he would have to cart all of the, everything that he produced on this land back to his property ten miles away. So there was a problem, and he decides, I really want to just own my own land and be self-sufficient, not be reliant on paying somebody else for their land. And so that's put in his heart. And then he's talking to one of these land dealers that rents the properties out, and they tell him about a country not far away, about 300 miles away, that, that there's this, these people, and in this country was called Valley Center, and, <laughs> and this land was excellent. And these people were really simple-minded. You see, the chief of these people, in fact, if you just brought him gifts, he would, gift you, he would give you as much land as you wanted. And that was, the, that was the saying. So this man had to investigate. He took all the money he had and he went to this chief in this far-off land because there's more land there than ever, the dream. And this chief, you know, he finally meets with his chief and through the translator, he asked the chief, how much do you want for some property? And the chief says, well... One day costs about a uh, thousand. I'll say a thousand dollars, if you will. And he says, "How do you count a day?" He's like, "Well, you have to start here, and as far as you can walk in a day, and come back to where you started. That land is yours." That was the chief's deal. They shook on it, but the chief said, "But here's the deal: if you cannot come back to the same place you started with before the sun goes down, the deal's off, and the money is ours." So the man thinks, well, this is excellent. I'm gonna, I can walk at least 35 miles in a day. And this land, you know, they're up on this mountain looking at this land, and all that he could see could be his. It was excellent. It was great. This man he could not sleep at all that night. He was up all night dreaming about what this land would bring and how he could sell off parts of this land and make even more money and even rent out parts of his land and, and how he could, you know, grow all kinds of crops on this beautiful property that's never been farmed before. He's up all night. He finally dozes off right before the sun's about to come up. He gets up. He wakes up the chief and, and all the people, and they come out to where he's going to start. As soon as the sun comes up, this man grabs you know, his little jug of water and a piece of bread, and he starts off walking, and he is so ambitious. He thinks, I'm going to walk as far. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to even beat what I thought I could do, 35 miles. I'm going to walk further. And as he goes, he sees the sun start to creep up, and it gets a little bit hot. And by about noon, he's, he's walking, and he thinks, I, I really should take a break. I'm sweating. I'm, I'm really tired. My legs are starting to be a little bit wearied out, like weird out. And, and so he, t he sits down and drinks some water, but then he thinks, I can't rest. There's land at stake here. I can keep walking and I can keep doing this. And he keeps walking. Then he notices the sun starts to go down, as it does every single day. It starts to go down. And he thinks, I need to get back 
Because if I don't get back in time, the deal's off and I just lost everything. So what happens? This man starts coming back, but his feet start to give out. He's so weary from his journey. He hasn't taken a break all day. He's been walking in the hot sun, only had a little bit of water. And he finally gets to the point where he can see the hill in Valley Center where he started. And the sun's going down over this hill. And he's thinking, I, I don't know if I can make this. And he gets to the bottom of the hill. And, and the sun is actually now behind the hill. And he starts to scream, how could I possibly have let this happen? And then he realized that he could hear the chief and those talking on the other side. And he's like, well, the sun hasn't gone down on their side of the hill yet. So he races up this hillside. And, and he gets to the chief only to die at his feet as the chief is congratulating him on all of the land that he just acquired because of his exhaustion. His servant that was with him took him and buried him in six feet of dirt. How much land does a man require? It's an interesting story, but I think what it does is it shows us this idea, is it better to gain the whole world or lose your soul? And it's, it's, it's this same thought, I think, that Jesus is, is following for two chapters now from Mark chapter 8. In fact, go back to Mark chapter 8 real quick before we read our text this morning. Mark chapter 8 should be about two pages back in your Bibles. And we'll start, look at verse 34. Mark chapter 8, verse 34. He says, And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever would lose his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? What can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes into his glory, the glory of the Father with his holy angels. You see, it's the same thought. It's like this, this idea that following Christ the gospel of Christ requires great sacrifice, but involves incredible grace. And we saw that in the last two weeks, actually, as we looked at Jesus with the infants, the grace of God that saves these little infants, even though they've done nothing to earn salvation, nothing to deserve it. They haven't followed the law because they can't even know their right from their left. They're infants. And God says, no, these are covered in my grace. Salvation comes by grace, not by works. You see, this, this culture was so ingrained in their legalistic society that it's like, no, we have to work to in, inherit salvation. We have to earn our salvation by doing good works. And Jesus is saying, no, that's not how this works. And then that's contrasted by the next story of this rich young man who comes and falls at Jesus' feet. And this young man was a man who went to church since he was a kid growing up. His parents taught him the scriptures. He knew it by heart. He even practiced it. You see, and this young man came to Jesus and he said, I've done all that the laws required to me, but what do I need to inherit salvation? You see, he was young. He had that going for him. He was rich. He had that going for him. And he was a ruler. So he was some kind of ruler, whether it was in the synagogue or in the society he was some kind of ruler, so he had status. In our culture, that's like up there. You've arrived. You see, and yet he's saying, but there's still an emptiness inside of me. Now, what we can deduce again from last week is that this man likely inherited his wealth from his dad because at this point, there was no such thing as a 20-year-old billionaire, millionaire. 
There was just no such thing in this time. It was likely that his father had passed away when he was a young man and he inherited this wealth and likely the status and everything else that came with it. So his idea is, how do I inherit eternal life? You see, that's the problem right there. He said the right thing. He asked the right person. He came in the right attitude. He asked, how do I inherit eternal life? And isn't that right? Don't we inherit eternal life? See, today we're going to learn that eternal life is for family, not for fans. Eternal life is for family, not for fans. It's an important lesson that Jesus is trying to teach us here. That following him will cost us something. But what we gain is so much better than what we lose. So let's look at Mark chapter 10, verse 23, where we're picking up this morning. Mark 10, 23 says this, And Jesus looked around him and said to his disciples, How difficult will it be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God? And the disciples were amazed at his words. And Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for the camel to go through an eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they, the the disciples, were exceedingly astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, See, we have left everything and followed you. And Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses, brothers, sisters, mothers, and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. See, the context of this is Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. And for the last two chapters, he's been trying to teach this same theme. It's like, you guys, he's speaking to the disciples, to us, anyone who's following him. If you want to follow me, it's not going to be what you think. You're going to have to sacrifice something. Following me looks different than what you think it is. And for the last two chapters, he's saying this this idea of following me is you have to die to yourself. Pick up your cross. Follow me. And this young man turned away and was sorrowful because he had great possessions. He had great land. You see, Jesus knew that he was heading to Jerusalem for the last time, actually, in these two chapters, in these last two chapters we've been going over. And he'd already told his disciples twice that his plan was to go to Jerusalem, hand himself over to the chief priests to be tried, beaten, spit on, and crucified. And then three days later, rise again. He'd already told these people, the disciples, those who were following him twice, that that was his plan. You see, following Jesus is often different than what we think it is or often than we want, what we want it to be. You see, just before this, Jesus, not it was after he told him he must deny, deny ourselves, take up a cross, and follow him, that Jesus takes Peter, James, and John up the mountain and is transfigured before them and is revealed to them in glory. And Peter, of course, is the one that pipes up and says, God, we want to build some shelters here for you. And God, the, the voice of the Father booms down, and this is something we should all remember, the voice of the Father here in front of Jesus, and he's saying, no, shows over, this is my beloved son, listen to him. 
See, the gospel of Christ is, is great. We all want salvation, but oftentimes we want it on our terms. We don't want to listen to Christ and what he has to say about it. Amen? This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And from then, the disciples were learning this tough lesson. Right after that, the disciples failed, out, failed to cast out a demon from a young boy when Jesus comes down from that mountain after he's transfigured, and they're asking him why. Well, because it requires prayer and fasting. Jesus shows his power over the spiritual realm, just like that, that he is God. He's saying, listen to me. The kingdom of God is different than what you think it's going to be. Jesus, again, he tells his disciples he's going to die. Immediately, they begin talking about who's going to be the greatest. You see, the disciples are learning this tough lesson, but they keep, I mean, in our minds, they keep screwing up. It's like, these guys just don't get it, but I like to think, you know, if I was there, I probably would have been right in the same boat with them. I probably would have been right in the same boat with them, because why? They wanted the liberation from the Roman government. They saw Jesus, they saw his power over not only the spiritual realm, but over the physical realm. He's walking on water. He tells the fish to get in their nets and they obey him. And yet, for some reason, when it comes to us being obedient, the fish are are more obedient than us. And that's that's a lesson right there. I guess I could preach on that later. (laughs) Jesus then teaches about marriage and divorce, and he doesn't pull any punches. He's saying, your idea of marriage, your idea of divorce is a lot different than mine. It's a lot different than God's. It's a lot different than how I planned it. And that was a tough message to hear, amen? But you see, Jesus isn't uncomfortable with poking us where it hurts, with poking us where we are in rebellion to him, where there might be sin in our lives. And he's poking that area because he's saying, look, I want you, I want to I want to change that. I want to enter into your life. I want to transform you to be more like me, more like Christ. As Christians, that's our game. That's our, that's our, our aim. If we're aiming at anything, it's Jesus, amen? Yes, not all of us are going to be perfect shots. But we need to have the common aim, that is Christ. Our eyes need to be on him. Jesus is saying, keep your eyes on me. And when I point out something that's uncomfortable in your life, listen to me. I'm trying to help you. I'm not trying to hurt you. I'm trying to give you something, uh, an inheritance that's incorruptible, not something that you're going to be able to hold on to for 50 or 60 years and then it, you die and it goes away. I'm trying to give you something better than what you have in this life. I want you to have eternal life. See, then Jesus gets mad at his disciples for holding back children from him. He takes the children, he blesses them, he teaches the disciples. Another important lesson that, that we need to come to Jesus completely dependent on him. Completely dependent on him, not on our stuff. You see, being dependent on Jesus in 2020 looks a lot different than it did back then because we have a lot more stuff. That we need to come to him dependent and with childlike faith. Not like this rich young ruler who wanted what Christ had to offer, salvation. We all want salvation. If you ask anyone on the street, anyone in Valley Center, anyone in the world for that matter, if they want eternal life, salvation, they're all going to say yes. But they want it on their terms. They want it tacked on to what they already possess. Jesus is saying that's not the way. You see, the vital mistake this young man had this rich young man had, was he understood that we inherit eternal life, but it's not. It's not for fans. It's not for people that want it tacked on. It's for people that are willing to surrender what we have, what little we have in this short-lived life that we have, to say, no, God, I want what you can offer me. 
I want the grace, your grace over my sin. I want to be reconciled back to you. I want to become like Christ. It's a good lesson for us. And we have to ask ourselves the question, as we did last week, are we going to see Jesus as a good teacher or as a sovereign Lord to be obeyed? Are we going to see Jesus as a good teacher or a sovereign Lord to be obeyed? You see, this, this lesson is about lordship. What's Lord over your life today? What rules over your life? See, when Jesus looks around and he says to his disciples how difficult it is for those with wealth to enter the kingdom of God, and the disciples were amazed at his words. You see, when he's looking around the context of this, is Jesus had just blessed the little children, and then as he's getting ready to leave, this young man runs up to him, gets on his knees, and he has this dialogue with this rich young man, after which he walks away sad. And then Jesus doesn't look at the rich young man walking away. He looks at those around him, the, the children, the moms, the dads, the disciples that are there with him in this context. And he says how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed. Why? Because in their culture and in ours, I would say, they had a, a poor idea of, a poor theology of wealth, I would say. In their, in their mindset, if we go back to Jesus' time, those who had wealth were blessed by God. You see, those who had possessions, those who had wealth, what little they had, whatever they had, they were blessed by God. Wealth was seen as a blessing from the Lord. And that's why it was so shocking for his disciples. They're like, okay, wait, Lord, you're, you're messing with my, my brain today, Lord. You just, we just saw this young man who had grew up, grown up in church and he had followed all of the law and he came to you and he asked about eternal life. Like he just did everything right and you turned him away because of his wealth, he wasn't willing to get rid of it. Like, Lord, isn't, isn't that wealth that he has a blessing from you? And their, their minds are just, everything that they have, the, the wisdom of their day was turned on its head right then. The disciples were amazed at his words. Then who can be saved? You see, the religious leaders flaunted their wealth in their attire, their homes, or everything that they had. But see, we have to understand that this particular passage here, Mark chapter 10, is not directed at those people, but you. What do I mean by that? This teaching isn't directed at the unchurched, but the churched. This was a man who grew up in church, if you will. He knew the Bible, if you will. He had studied the Bible, and yet he wasn't willing to give up his possessions, which held him back from Christ. He had parents that were very likely good believers and taught him to follow God, and yet he still, his possessions held him back from Christ. It's a personal decision we all have to make whether or not we're going to sacrifice everything we have here today for the gospel's sake and for Christ, or if we're not. It's, it's a personal decision. It's not something we can make corporately as America. It's a personal decision. It's a heart change that has to happen. This message is for us. But you see, we have a tendency to look at these texts in our, in, our, in our minds, like when you're studying these texts on your own throughout the week, you'll often read this text and you'll think to yourself when Jesus is talking about how difficult it is for those with wealth to enter the kingdom of God and will automatically think, thank goodness he's not talking about me. <laughs> right? You see, because I grew up and that was how I looked at it. That was oftentimes how, how I looked at it. You see, 
Because we associate wealth as those with a million dollars. We associate wealth as those who, who can buy exuberantly, abundantly, more than what we can afford or even want. They're the ones that have the 10,000 square foot houses and then vacation houses they can go to and the fun boat they can go out on the lake with and, and all of this stuff, right? When the truth is, my, my worldview completely changed, I think, when I went to Uganda. And we traveled almost 24 hours in a plane to go from here to New York to London and then to Etenby, Uganda. And, and then we get out in Uganda and we get, jump in this little tiny four-wheel drive bus that was barely running and we drove another 10 hours to get into the middle of nowhere, Uganda, to go serve a little village. And we got to see essentially all of Uganda from the street side, from a van. And as we stopped, we got to talk to people and see what the, what the world was like. And for me, my worldview was shattered at that moment. See, all of a sudden I understood like this bubble that I lived in in America, this isn't reality for the rest of the world. You see, there was little babies, little children that if we saw little children running in the middle of nowhere here in the United States, like Child Protective Services would be called. Out there, it was normal. It was normal to see a six or five-year-old boy carrying his infant baby or brother or sister on his back because his mom was working a field. It was normal to see all these little infant kids running around playing soccer with no shoes on and gravelly dirt because that they couldn't afford shoes. It was normal that they would maybe have one poor meal a day because they couldn't afford anything else. We must be careful not to have a bad theology of wealth here. And I'm guilty of this. It's co- for example, a common response I think that we have when somebody asks, hey, how are you doing in church is what? I'm blessed. And what do we mean by that? I don't think we, we have any ill intentions here. I'm not trying to say you do. But what I'm saying is we have to be careful by what we mean by that. Because oftentimes what we mean by that is I'm blessed. I have everything that I could need and a lot that I want. I have a roof over my head. I have money in my bank account. I have a savings account for my retirement. I have a car that's running. I have all of this, this stuff. I'm blessed. And what we're saying is that that all comes from God, that our blessing, our, everything that we have comes from God. And because we're blessed by God, then what are we saying about the other 90% of the world that doesn't have that? 50% of the world lives on less than $5.50 a day. 10% of the world lives on less than $1.90 a day. Now, yes, we've been making a big dent on that. The statistics have, like, studies have shown we've really improved the standard of living around the world over the last 12 years, even. But we must be careful not to think about ourselves as, as the disciples in this situation. No, we are that rich, young ruler. You see, if we took that rich, young ruler out of that context and we brought him to Grace Point Church here this morning and we would throw him in our car, right, which he would have no idea what this was, and as soon as we started up the car and started driving, he would be mind-blown because what horse, where's the horses or the camels pulling your car? And we'd say, well, those are under the hood. And... Then we would drive up to our house and we would press a button in our car where a whole wall of our house would move and he would think, how are you moving a wall? To which we would drive into our garage and we would park our car, open the door for this, this rich young ruler and he would come out of the car and he'd ask, what's all this stuff in your garage? And he'd be like, well, there's some tools and the rest of it are just bins packed up eight feet high. I haven't looked at them in a couple years, but you know, we did just go through and did some spring cleaning, so we got rid of a lot of stuff, but... I don't know, the, the real stuff's in here. And we go inside the house 
And he would look, and there's a bathroom with a toilet that flushes, and he'd be like, well, where does our waste go? And he'd, we'd be like, well, I don't know. <laughs> Somewhere, it disappears. And then maybe he'd spend 30 minutes playing with the sink because you can all of a sudden change the temperature of the water on command. Perhaps what would be most magical to him would be the fact that we have art that moves on the walls. Or that we have a cell phone in our pocket that we can watch somebody else's face talk to us from miles and miles away. Or the fact that we could open up a fridge where he would feel the cold air of the fridge hit his face where all of our nice food and drinks are preserved just to say, well, we don't really have anything to eat. And then we would call, call somebody and say, oh, we need to order some pizza. And he'd be like, how's it going to get here? He'd be like, well, we have a teenage boy probably driving it here right now. You see, we have a lot more than this rich young ruler. In fact, the very phone that you hold in your pocket has more computing power than the, 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 the exact computer that put the Apollo level 11 on the moon. Now think about that. Think about that. What you carry in your pocket has more computing power than what put an astronaut, the first astronaut on the moon. Like, that's incredible to me, 50 years. That's incredible. But we have to be careful that we don't get this us and them mentality when we're looking at this text. We are the wealthy of the world. We are the 1%. If you make more than $30,000 a day, you are the 1%. That's, that's incredible. Is it $30,000 a year? Sorry. (laughs) Thanks for catching me on that. Thanks for catching me. That would have been a lot, yeah. And I guess, okay, in our our context, if you made that much a day, you would be definitely the top (laughs) 0.5% maybe. Oh, man. So we look at that. This rich young ruler comes to God, and if he was a rich young ruler with all that he had, and we have so much more, How much more does this text apply to us? How much more does it apply to us? You see, Jesus then in in verse 24, he says, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. You see, the warning here is for us to see just how hard it is to surrender our lives and our possessions to the lordship of Jesus. But see, when Jesus is teaching, he doesn't just teach the adults in the audience because in verse 24, I do believe when he says, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God, he's looking at the kids. They're still there. They're still playing around him. He says, kids, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. And then he even gives them an analogy that they would understand. He says, it would be easier for a camel to go through an eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And I believe all the kids were probably laughing at that. Amen? Because it's just a silly concept, Jesus But he's saying, no, it's easier for this camel, the largest animal that they could envision in in their time that was there, it's easier for that large animal to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to be saved. And Jesus looked at them with, man, it's impossible to be saved, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. See, I've heard this particular passage taught incorrectly too many times. What do I mean by that? Perhaps you've heard a couple of these different interpretations of this passage where the camel and the eye of the needle, and some of these authors will say, hey, like, there's, there's this thing called the needle gate, and what camels would have to do is, is they would, the, the, the rider would have to get off the camel and then unbag the camels, and they would have to get down on their knees and crawl through this little tiny gate when there was a bigger gate that was much more accessible right around the corner, by the way, and they would have to go through this gate so that way they could enter the, 
the city walls, you know, enter the city because that was their way to keep basically raid parties and other people that weren't helpful out. And it's like, no, there was, there's absolutely no historical evidence that any such needle gate existed, period. One, one, I think it was probably just one, one pastor liked that analogy and then we ran with it for years. Okay, so got that one behind us. How about this one, though? There, some, some commentators will look at the Greek and they'll say, well, it could have just been a mispronunciation of a word, the camel, could have actually meant rope or cable. And it's obviously impossible for a rope or a cable to go through the eye of a needle. Anyone who's ever sewn, I can barely get a thread through an eye of a needle, much less a rope. So that wasn't the case either. Perhaps, instead of trying to make this easier to understand for us, for our own sakes. Like I said last week, oftentimes we want to say what Jesus really meant was, was this because we want to make him look more like us. No, I think what he means is that it is actually impossible to enter the kingdom of God aside from his grace, mercy, and his, his sacrifice. It's impossible. It's impossible. Jesus means that. Nothing we do can earn us salvation. It is the poor in spirit who enter the kingdom of God. Matthew 5.3 says that. Those who recognize their spiritual poverty, their complete inability to do anything to justify themselves before a holy God. The rich are so often blind to their spiritual poverty. But it's easy to be blind. <laughs> it's so easy for them to be blind, especially for us to be blind to the God that they worship their stuff. You see, Jesus even talked about this in, in the parable of the four soils. You remember the soil with the thorns in it where the seed was sown and, and the word grew in that soil, but so did the thorns that came around it and they choked out the word. And what were the thorns? They were our possessions, our stuff, our money, anything that's holding us back from following God completely with abandon, surrendering everything that we have, saying, God, you, I'm yours. I'm yours, God. Everything that I have is yours. Everything that I am is yours. I surrender my desires, everything to you, Lord. And he's not saying he's going to take all of that away if you surrender. Did he do that to every single one? Did he call every single Christian, every single person to follow him and leave everything behind? No. He did this to one man because that was what was holding him back from following Christ. See, the, the lesson to learn here, is, as I said earlier, it's a lordship lesson. Is there a good thing in your life that you are making a God thing? Is there a good thing in your life that you are making a God thing that holds on to your life so tightly that you can't follow Christ with surrender? You see, because Jesus didn't just die on the cross, and listen to me on this one, Jesus didn't just die on the cross to pay the penalty of our sins. He died on the cross to be your Lord. He died on the cross to be your king. Are you willing to surrender to the lordship of Jesus this morning? Following him with childlike faith, being obedient to his commands, and leaving the past behind, living, an, living a, a repentant life? Or are you going to continue living in unrepentant sin is the question. Because that was what this man had. The sin in his life, particularly his possessions, wasn't unrepentant of sin because he made that his idol. He made that his God. 
You shall have no other gods before me. Therefore, it's a sin. It separates him from God. He needs to repent. Here, I think Jesus is calling the church to repent. He's calling those who grew up in church but are unwilling to let go of what they have because that's their security, that's their safety net, that's their their comfort level, and, and we're holding on to these things so tightly, but Jesus is saying, no, I want you to come, but we're holding on to this, and it's holding us back, and we're like, Jesus, I want to come, but I want to bring this. We have to let it go. You have to let it go. And they were exceedingly astonished, verse 26, and he said to them, who then can be saved? Jesus looks at them, he says, with man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, See, and I love Peter. Peter always pipes up, and he always has to say something, right? See, we've left everything and followed you. And I think in my mind, yeah, Peter, you left a boat in a fishing business. Like, okay, it wasn't that hard to give that up, right? But, Jesus, but Peter's saying, we left everything to follow you. And Jesus says, truly, I say to you, there is none who has left house, nor brothers, nor sisters, or mothers, or children, fathers, lands, for my sake, and for the gospel. Remember that part, and for the gospel, who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last will be first. So when Peter says, hey, we've left everything, indeed he did. Yes, he did. But let me just point this out to you, church. Leaving everything is not synonymous with salvation. Leaving everything behind is not synonymous with getting eternal life. What do I mean by that? Who else was in this crowd of disciples when Jesus said this? Judas. When Jesus says, for my sake and for the Gospels, Judas wasn't there for that. He hadn't left everything for that. It was for his sake. That's the reason he sold, sold out Jesus. Not too long after we'll be learning about that story. And, and we have to realize that leaving everything is not synonymous with salvation. The disciples did leave their boats, but the truth is that they remembered where they parked them. (laughs) They remembered where they parked them. Why? Because right after Jesus was crucified on the cross, what did the disciples do? They jumped back in those boats. So remember what the Father said. This is my beloved Son. Listen to him. Is Jesus the Lord of your life? Are you listening to him? The gospel demands incredible sacrifice, but involves incredible grace. You see, I think of Abraham in this particular passage. There's a lot of other other ones we can look at too, and I'll, I'll maybe point them out to you. Abraham was a man that God called, and he said, "You're gonna. I want you to be my people. You're gonna. You're gonna have more sons than the the stars in the sky, etc." And he finally has a son in his old age, and then God says, "I want you to now take that son up this mountain, and I want you to sacrifice him." Did he wait one day before he took his son up? No, he was completely obedient to God. He left that day. He gathered the wood. He got the cart. He got the donkey. He went up with his son Isaac to the top of that mountain. He set up the altar. He set it up with his son on it. He bound his son. And right as about he's about to, to sacrifice his son because God commanded him to, God says, no, I don't want you to sacrifice your son. But I want you to sacrifice everything you have for me. See, that's the, that's the story. That's the picture here. It's something we see throughout the story of God and us. He wants us to follow him with absolutely nothing holding us back. Do you understand that? What could be holding you back today? You see, because it, for Isaac, or for Abraham, it could have been his son became his God, if, if you will. 
Why? Because he had waited so long and in his age, all of a sudden his son could have been his retirement plan, his security when he's older. It could have been the man who gave him food on the table when he's old. You know, all of these things. He could have found his safety and his security in him instead of God. Amen? You following me? It's not, it's not that all wealth, though, comes from God either. And that's why I said we have to be careful with our theology. In Acts 16, Lydia, she's a seller of fine purple, a very hard, com- you know, a hard color to come by at that time. Uh, she had great wealth, but what she did in Acts chapter 16, we can see that she funded the mission of the Apostle Paul. She funded the kingdom of God. She was a treasure transplanter, I call it. She took what she had that was worldly, the money she had that she made from this perfume, from this color purple, and she said, and she said I want you to use this God for your kingdom, for your glory, that other people might hear the gospel. And that's what we are when we give at Grace Point Church, when we give to any other missions organization around the world, is we are treasure transplanters. We're taking something that's temporary that we're going to die and leave behind, and we're making that something eternal because we're pouring that into his kingdom. That's the idea of giving into the kingdom of God. How about Joseph and Nicodemus? They were both wealthy men. They buried Jesus in this expensive, nice tomb when he died. The woman that anointed Jesus with her perfume, that was an expensive bottle of perfume worth of at least a year's worth of wages. And she said, no, God, I want to sacrifice this. I want to give this to you. I don't want it to hold me back from following you. That, that's the example that we're giving here. But you see, Zacchaeus, here's, here's another young man. Zacchaeus was a wee little man. A wee little man was he. He climbed up in a sycamore tree to see what he could see. Zacchaeus was a tax collector. He was a wealthy man. When Jesus was coming, he climbed up this tree to see Jesus. Jesus said, I'm dining in your house today. And and Zacchaeus comes down and his dialogue with him is this, Lord, I'm going to give half of what I own, half of what I own to the poor. And if I've wronged anyone, I'm going to repay them back four times what what I took from them. Pretty big offer. And Jesus says, today salvation has come to your house. Pretty incredible, right? See, if I was that rich young man, I would, have, I would have thought about that story probably, and I would have been like, Jesus, could I just have the Zacchaeus plan, just 50%? Just 50%, Lord. I'm okay with that. But you see, Zacchaeus was willing to give up that. He just said, Lord, this out of the abundance of what I have, I want to give to the poor. I want your kingdom to grow. I, you know, it's not going to hold me back from following you is what he's saying. Money cannot save you. Religion cannot save you. Religion is just, it's a ladder that we climb to try to get up to God, but we get stuck on the the third rung up and all of a sudden we can do nothing else but go down. Falling from a ladder is never good. See, but Jesus takes that ladder of religion, turns it upside down, says, no, I came down to you. Jesus came down to you. Listen to him. And the final sobering truth that I'll end with is this, that not all wealth comes from God. And again, this is what I want to point out is sometimes I believe wealth comes from the devil and it becomes a snare that keeps us away from God. It becomes a cage that we can live, a comfortable cage, if you will, a cage of wealth that we get to live in, but it keeps us from eternal salvation. 1 John chapter 3, verse 7 says, Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. What he's saying, he's saying people that live in unrepented of sin right there. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Verse 9 says, No, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning, because he has been born of God. By this it is evident 
Who are children of God and who are the children of the devil? Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. You see, there's two camps, if you will. There's those who have been born again by God. It's the same question Nicodemus had, and and he was totally messed up by God saying, no, you need to be born again. You see, this idea of being born anew, receiving a new heart of God where we have the Holy Spirit in us that's now transforming us into the character of God, into the likeness of God. It's this new life that we can step into, leaving our old life behind. It's like this, this shedding of our shell, if you will. Or we're children of the devil. It's either one or the other. You're either for him or against him. Children of the devil. There's a lot of children of the devil right now that are living in comfortable cages. Keeping them back from God. But we strive to be those who practice righteousness. Those who are the children of God. Who love our brothers. Amen? And who want to look to him and say, Lord, I want to obey you. Lord, I'm reading this this morning and I want to be obedient to that. What does that look like in my life, Lord? What am I holding on to, Lord? Point out what I'm holding on to and show me what I need to give up, if there's anything, Lord, so I can follow you more completely, so I can make a bigger impact in your kingdom, Lord. We must be born again, though, to receive, to receive this heavenly inheritance see, because, honestly, church, the heavenly inheritance comes to family, it comes to the children of God not to fans of God, not to those who sit on the sidelines and say, yes, I know about God, I've been in church, but I'm not willing to give up what I have for God. So this inheritance comes, salvation comes to those who are children of God, not fans. So lastly, and I'll invite the worship team to come up as we say this, I just want to ask you guys, are you a treasure transplanter today? Is the soil of your heart filled with, with thorns? that have driven you far from God. You see, Sinclair Ferguson, um, he has got some great, great writing. He says it like this. He says, If you desire anything less for yourself than absolute obedience to God, a life of total devotion to the Lord, a life of absolute sinlessness, if you desire anything less, you are fighting against God's desire for you. If you desire anything less for yourself than absolute obedience to God, you are fighting against his desire for you. That's a powerful thing for us to think about this week. It is indeed a powerful thing. Let's pray. Father God, as we've discussed a lot, Lord, this morning, Lord, and we can even put ourselves in the position of this rich young ruler, Lord. We are those who have been given much. Lord, we have been given much and we are thankful for much. Lord, we have won the lottery. We, we were born in the United States. We could not choose to be born here, Lord, a country that is free to worship and, and to choose you. Lord, a country with so much opportunity, Lord, so much wealth, where we can not only have what we need, Lord, but what we want. And Lord, I pray this morning that we would not be a church that wastes that. Lord, help us not to waste what you've given us, Lord, the favor you have given us, Lord, to use it for your kingdom. That's our desire, Lord, to be more like Christ. Lord, would you transform us? Lord, would you make us more like you this morning? And would you fill us by your spirit, Lord? Would your spirit have free reins in our hearts to to do the work of, of pulling things out that need to be pulled out of our lives, Lord, and replacing it with the heavenly inheritance 
that we can receive as children of God. We pray these things in Jesus' precious name. The church said, amen.